You're listening to Across the Table, a healthcare private equity podcast brought to you by McGuire Woods. Across the Table brings you inside the conversation with the specialists and professionals of the healthcare private equity industry. Welcome, everyone, for another edition of Across the Table, where we bring together deal makers and thought leaders to take a deeper dive into some of the sectors of healthcare investing that we spend a lot of time. This is Jeff Cockrell. I'm the chair of the private equity group at McGuire Woods. McGuire Woods has got about 1,100 lawyers across the country. I spend all of my time at the intersection of private equity and healthcare, principally doing transactions and various sorts of provider services and other aspects of healthcare investing. I'm joined by my colleague, Trey Andrews, who spends most or a lot of his time specifically in executing home health transactions. So he brings a significant depth of expertise from the legal perspective on the home health arena. And we're really thrilled to have my good friend, Barry Freeman from Lincoln International joining us. Barry is probably one of the best investment bankers in uh, the healthcare space that I know, and we're really thrilled to have him join us. Barry's done a ton of work in the home health space. Barry, can you give a little bit of an introduction of yourself and Lincoln? Thanks, Jeff. I appreciate the opportunity to participate today. I'm Barry Freeman. I'm a managing director and co-head of the healthcare group at Lincoln International. I've been doing healthcare mergers and acquisitions my entire career, about 27 years. And in that time, I've been primarily an investment banker, but I've also served in a corporate development capacity as well as a private equity investor. So have you know worn all the hats, so to speak, in healthcare mergers and acquisitions throughout my career. And through much of that time, have been quite active in the home health and home care industries, having done my first M&A transaction in the sector back in 1997. So it's been really a a mainstay of of my M&A practice for most of my career to be active in this sector, which has undergone tremendous transactional changes and reimbursement metamorphosis over the years. So it's been an exciting sector to be a part of. Thanks, Barry. Maybe jumping right in, one of the ways to frame the discussion, and one that we often think about as lawyers, and I know you do as an investment banker, is the sector's prognosis for activity. So interest in the sector compared to last year. And while home health can be thought of as either a broad industry that might cover skilled nursing, unskilled sorts of care, infusion services, DME, might bleed into hospice services. If you thought about it either generally or more narrowly, how would you describe the 2021 prognosis for home health as opposed to 2020 or 2019? And why do you think that might be? Well, I don't think you could talk about the prognosis for the sector without mentioning the long-term impact that COVID has created for the industry. And, you know, although COVID in of itself is a tragedy, it has been probably a a huge catalyst favorably for the industry and for M&A in the industry. Again, from the perspective of being a long-time participant in this industry from an advisory perspective, I think that the, the catalyst that COVID represents in terms of really accelerating the push to deliver more care in the home, as well as to try and create support structures 
in terms of products and services technologies to enable people to live longer and healthier and more comfortably in their homes and in their communities and stay away from institutional settings. This push is now so profound and and now I think everybody with the experience of 2020 and, and the horrible events that unfolded in venues such as senior living communities really highlight in the eyes of both industry professionals, government officials, regulators, and and just families recognize the imperatives of trying to keep their loved ones comfortable and safe in their home. And I think the industry is now playing catch up at some level to fund programs to enable this, as well as accelerate technologies to provide more product services and capabilities to manage people in their homes and keep them there. So as we look across the whole ecosystem of home care, whether it's home physicians, home nurses, home health aides, infusion therapies, home medical product delivery, home medical supplies, testing, diagnostics, and obviously telehealth and remote patient monitoring, all of these things that reach into the home are all seeing very positive tailwinds in terms of both demand from the patient and the consumer, as well as just a structural shift as the healthcare industry, both physician-led as well as payer-led, are trying to find ways to offer more care in the home. And so we just see a tremendous runway for the industry as a whole over the coming you know, five to 10 years as the landscape continues to tilt towards the home across all these different modalities. That's super interesting. And the, the impact of COVID on all this is very interesting. And I might contrast it with some other sectors that have seen increased utilization tragically on account of the COVID crisis. For example, urgent care has not surprisingly uh, seen a significant increase. Certain forms of lab services have obviously seen a certain amount of increase. But from a M&A perspective, those are actually somewhat difficult to account for in a transaction that the bump from of utilization are not expected to be long-lasting. And it can be a confounding factor on kind of M&A during this time. But your assessment of the impact of COVID as a catalyst that is kind of more fundamentally changing the sector is super interesting. Those tailwinds that you mentioned of moving to lower-cost area of care, those have always been present, but home health in particular, I think, has, has suffered from a lack of stability, whether that was kind of some legacy bad actors, a lot of them, in the home health area, creating a, a pretty heightened regulatory enforcement environment, or the reimbursement being very fluctuating and subject to pretty significant cuts. They, the lack of stability around the sector has made it difficult for M&A. One of the recent changes has been some changes in the PDG and reimbursement model. I think it's brought a lot more stability to the area and, and opened it up for longer-term investment. Trey, can you maybe talk a little bit about the PDGM payment model and the changes and what those impacts have been? Sure. Thanks, Jeff. PDGM 
really, it shifted the change in the reimbursement model for how home health agencies are reimbursed by the Medicare program from a fee-for-service model to a value-based care model, essentially meaning that the companies, that home health agencies are incentivized to have quality outcomes that benefit patients over just payment for a delivery of high volume of services. And I think this created, in early 2020, there were some concerns about what how the impact of PDGM would be on investment in the home health sector. I think industry participants were looking at the counterpart, their skilled nursing facility counterpart, PDPM, and how it impacted investment, which as PDPM rolled out, it tended to stall or mute or kind of compress investment due to the reimbursement changes. And industry thought, okay, PDGM's coming out. Is the same thing going to happen because of the changes putting small home health agencies instantly in stressful financial positions due to either maybe a lack of sophistication for managing cash or transitioning to a value-based care system and the sophistication it would take to to be able to really shift from a volume-based reimbursement scheme to a value-based reimbursement scheme. And I don't think we've seen that occur. I think that it's a little bit unknown of whether the impact of COVID really helped smooth out the PDGM effects. And what I mean when I say that is, to me, it's not clear whether this substantial amount of government relief programs due to COVID have played an impact in managing cash flow for these small home health agencies. I mean, in a matter of months from March to June of this year, the amount of cash pushed out into the healthcare system as a whole with the government relief programs, payroll protection programs, accelerated payments, those home health agencies across the board were able to benefit from those. And where in January 2020, some were predicting inability to manage cash flow as the financial pressure point for small home health agencies, notwithstanding the COVID impacts for operations and providing care, those infusions of cash from the government, it could have helped smooth it out. Now, I think that that's not changed the investment thesis in any way, though, because I still see this sector being in the infant stages of consolidation, as Barry said. But I I think that the industry has been able to manage the changes of PDGM much better than PDPM and probably being able to take on lessons from that were learned through the PDPM SNF counterpart. Barry, how do you think the PDGM uh, reimbursement changes have changed the dynamic from, from where you sit? I think that, as Trey indicates, the effect on the industry, I don't think was as negative or as sort of profound as I think some observers were anticipating in terms of PDGM heralding sort of a mass shakeout and and exodus of smaller players. I think that no doubt some of that has happened, but in the dialogues that we have with the skilled home health operators that have been impacted by PDGM, they largely have been able to manage and mitigate some of the changes to reimbursement and influence on um, referral patterns, as well as just the the way that PDGM addresses some of the policy shifts that have been going on, trying to emphasize community referral 
and trying to minimize the overutilization of therapy and shorten the episodes of care and really migrate towards more of a value-based orientation. So I think PDGM has delivered on many of those policy objectives, but has not produced the shakeout, if you will, that I think some people were expecting it to produce, which is a net positive, but the industry is still highly fragmented and that is a meaningful opportunity for operators and investors who are looking at the space and trying to think about uh, growth opportunities for the future. One other thing that I, I would just want to add on as well as we're on this topic is on the home care side, on the unskilled side, you know, another very significant policy change that I think is also bringing about positive developments in the industry, introduction of electronic visit verification. And, you know, we talk about the home health care industry as a whole has somewhat had a cloud over it in terms of bad actors and, and you know, fraud, waste, and abuse. And the electronic visit verification mandates that are going into effect are really designed to eliminate and reduce those kind of historic abuses and ensure that patients are receiving the care that has been authorized to be provided. And so I think that the industry is well aware of, of some of the challenges are definitely taking measures. As we think about selling a business in this industry, the compliance track record and their adherence to these kind of metrics is, is every bit as important as, as sort of the financial performance when we're representing the company. So, so these, these sort of aspects of compliance and, and fraud, waste, and abuse deterrence are central to, to any sort of sale process. Yeah, the interesting evolutions more broadly in the healthcare space that I've seen over the last few years is the migration to a model that more heavily involves joint venturing with health systems, whether that's kind of urgent care businesses, orthopedic businesses, physical therapy, the list goes on and on. These sectors that had historically been pretty siloed as it relates to health systems we're seeing increasingly very involved and very interesting and often very complex joint venture arrangements. Barry, from your perspective, as it relates to the home health industry, joint ventures with health systems has been a significant aspect as well. How would you describe kind of the theories around joint venture relationships as it relates to home health? The hospital community really is is not well set up as a general rule to manage the complexities of a home and community-based service delivery model. I think that hospitals are a fantastic source of patient referral volume. And as the healthcare system overall migrates to a value-based care orientation and away from fee-for-service, the hospital has a very vested interest in having a post-discharge home care operation that results in quality outcomes and patient satisfaction and the continued clinical forward progress of patients as they move away from the acute setting into post-acute care. So hospitals need quality home health care operations, but in terms of the skill set that the administrative and clinical leaderships of hospitals, that's not really their expertise. And so the joint venture 
is a very effective solution to address this need where the hospital really has to deliver on quality home health. And the home health agencies have the expertise, have the resources, have the staff, have the reach to provide that care. And so it's a, it's a very symbiotic relationship that has probably never been more relevant. And, and I think that obviously it also, from a financial standpoint, I think hospitals, like everyone else in the healthcare ecosystem, are feeling the financial pressures to really prioritize their dollars around the sort of mission-critical items. And so for them, a, a joint venture structure where they're not necessarily at risk for the staffing and the, the personnel and the sort of out of the hospital assets that are required to affect an efficient home health care operation and just underscore the value of the partnership. And so we are seeing, you know, more and more of these kind of models emerging and it's very beneficial for high quality home health operators who do have the technology, the infrastructure, the clinical pathways, and the ability to interoperate with the hospital to be really valuable partners to establish these kind of referral and sort of population health management protocols with the hospitals. So very timely and an and emerging model. Yeah, it also kind of changes and evolves the competitive landscape in the very fragmented home health arena. It wasn't that many years ago that the most significant relationship a home health agency would have is with the discharge nurse at the hospital or the skilled nursing facility. And just kind of very personal relationships at, at that level were very critical in, in how patients left the skilled nursing facility or the hospital. And, and you're right, the, the hospital's desire to keep that patient kind of in their health system ecosystem and their economic responsibility for those outcomes, whether it's being dinged on Medicare reimbursement, if there's a 30-day readmission back to the hospital, kind of changed those dynamics. And for a while, it was kind of vertical integration of hospitals doing their own home health. But to your point, they're not really suited to do that. But these joint venture relationships are increasingly putting a premium on the larger businesses of scale uh, that have the ability to deliver what the hospital is needing in that. So definitely a very significant kind of transformative evolution in my mind as this fragmented industry continues to consolidate, sometimes through acquisition, sometimes through these mechanisms making it harder for two nurses and a license to have an effective agency, but very, very significant evolution Trey, what are you seeing on the, the joint venture end of the sector? Yeah, I'd agree with what you both just said. I, I think that joint ventures and home health agencies have not been as commonplace historically, but we're definitely seeing a shift in investor mindset with home health agencies entertaining and exploring JV structures. I, I do think that off the bat, they tend to produce some more significant regulatory hurdles that have to be considered up front when these structures are put in place, more so than maybe some other provider types, just by the nature of typically the joint venture partners that are partnering with the home health agencies are significant referral sources or can be significant referral sources. And that can create the regulatory hurdle, but that can also drive an efficient healthcare delivery to the system 
and align interests among the parties to solve for true gaps in the care continuum. There's there's a difference between discharging someone from a SNF and just sending them home when the policy reason may be to drive them out of the facility to prevent infection control issues or just to limit the amount of days in a bed. But home health fills that gap and having an aligned interest between the SNF and the home health agency can still deliver the highest of quality of care to the patient where they need it. And that's one we've begun to see more commonplace is the partnering between the facilities that are discharging in addition to the hospitals, either the assisted living facilities, the SNFs, and the home health agencies in order to, if properly structured, capture the referral, but also in a compliant way from a regulatory perspective, but also to be a seamless provision of care to the patient, which is, I think, the ultimate goal. We uh, talked a little bit about telehealth at the beginning. There are certainly aspects of home care that don't lend themselves as cleanly to a telehealth solution, but there are aspects where it does. Barry, where do you see telehealth having an impact in the kind of home health ecosphere? Well, telehealth is also a really prime beneficiary, if you will, of COVID. Telehealth is not a novel concept or technology. It's been around, you know, probably since the 1980s as just a technology that's been out there. Remote vital monitoring and, and things of that nature have certainly been around, but have never sort of had their catalyst moment like COVID has presented to it. So when COVID landed and became the sort of national global pandemic that it has become, the major payers in the country revised all of their conditions for participation on an in-network basis, establishing effectively a mandate for any in-network provider of physician care services to have a telehealth strategy and capability as a condition to be in network. And so talk about a massive catalyst and boon for technology that's been sort of waiting for its curtain call here to come out on stage. While telehealth had been making inroads pre-COVID, it, it certainly is now accelerating with a lot of home health care agencies and provider organizations taking up a keen interest to address the issues of patient management in the home. Now, there, there are just certain realities that telehealth, while you can have certain kinds of encounters and certain kinds of monitoring, the reality is, is that for a number of the functions of home health care, it requires a person to be on site, right? You can't help someone on the activities of daily living. You need to be there. You can't have that done remotely as it relates to changing a wound dressing or managing uh, an infusion process. I mean, that, that requires someone skilled to be with the patient physically. So there are limitations ultimately at this point, but as it relates to some of the day-to-day -day aspects of chronic condition management, I think that telehealth absolutely has a place as a strong complement. We don't yet see telehealth being a replacement yet in, in any way for these services for that reason. But we think that 
the more sophisticated players in the home health and home care industries are integrating telehealth technologies into their care model, and we suspect that that's a trend that will continue. I would add that you mentioned the COVID pandemic as a catalyst through necessity, which is undoubtedly true. It also had the benefit of being an experiment to kind of either prove or disprove one of the concerns that payers have always had with uh, telehealth, and that is, while it may be true that you can conceive of the care being delivered in that format being adequate, there was always a concern that if the ease with which a person can access a telehealth solution could very well lead to materially increased utilization, such that if they uh, opened it up from a reimbursement perspective, that they could have massively more utilization and it cost, even though the location of care, every, every kind of cost driver you would think could bring down the overall cost of care, the potential when you expanded reimbursement is that you also significantly increase utilization and it just costs dramatically more once you do that. The COVID pandemic through necessity kind of pushed the industry into, into having to do this. And I think what we're seeing happening now is the realization that it didn't have that effect. And that kind of comfort level is, is going to continue opening up more and more avenues of service because the tailwinds will still be there of being a lower cost method of care. If it's not driving up utilization, it makes sense all day long. I think in every sector, home health included, I think we're going to continue to see uh, reimbursed avenues for delivery in uh, telehealth and other venues that really can reduce the cost. Maybe shifting gears a little bit, coming back to you, Barry, one of the interesting dynamics in the market, and you live in the, in the market of buyers of, of companies, one of the interesting dynamics in the home health space is kind of the nature of the company itself. And we talked about at the beginning a little bit that these companies can be narrow, maybe just related to skilled nursing, maybe just related to Medicare reimbursement within skilled nursing, or they could be broader as to payers and or dramatically broader in the context of services provided. From the market perspective, Barry, how would you describe these different approaches of narrow versus broad? It's a great question, Jeff. And what we've seen over time is that these models have fluctuated. And by that, I mean companies make shifts in their models over time to either become focused on a single line of service or single payer, meaning a skilled home health only kind of a model versus a model that has both skilled and unskilled, Medicare and Medicaid, and maybe hospice as well. And we see right now, there's certainly value, I think, in companies sticking to their knitting and being really best of breed in one area whether that's skilled or unskilled or infusion only or what, what have you. And so I think that there's always a virtue in my mind to a company organizing itself in that fashion, best of breed, scaled, diversified geographically, but really focused on one area of home health. However, in the era of value-based care, and as providers think about adding value to potential partners, whether those are payers 
or health systems or other kind of potential kind of in-market collaborators, we've seen a reversion, if you will, to this more diversified model of home healthcare companies having both a skilled and an unskilled and you know other divisions, if you will. So we're seeing maybe the pendulum coming back towards this more diversified model right now as people think longer term about value-based care and having more of a value proposition in the eyes of the large payers and, and such trying to garner contracts and exclusive arrangements in certain geographies having to really manage a larger menu of services on their behalf. Barry, from your perspective on that narrower service line versus broader service line, how does that impact your thinking on valuation? In theory, you've got service lines that in open market transactions might demand a different multiple, bring these kind of disparately, theoretically valued businesses together, their synergies, but you've also got some drag maybe of a lower valuation segment. How do you think about that from a valuation perspective? Ironically, what we are seeing is I think that, generally speaking, companies that are, you know, what I'll call the pure play model are generally getting higher valuations right now than the diversified model. So companies that are all or mostly hospice, all or mostly skilled care, all or mostly home care, those sort of more pure play versions are actually the ones that in our experience are driving better valuations right now. So the marketplace is not necessarily rewarding in all instances this notion of being a more diversified player and aligning the sort of provider to potentially be a more comprehensive value-based care player. Although I think everybody universally recognizes that that's the direction the market is moving in, I think most of the investor appetite and the valuation premiums are being paid around these businesses that are kind of large scale around doing one thing very well and representing most of the revenue of the organization. Again, whether you're talking about pediatric or you're talking about skilled home health for adults, hospice, I think the most popular models right now from a valuation standpoint are the ones that are singular in focus. Interesting. It would seem that the broader ones, however, might be in a better position to kind of avail themselves of some of the value-based propositions, whether that's contracting with payers or pilot programs with the government, being able to bring a wider suite of services would seem to be an advantage in that context. Trade to the point of other value-based structures, you talked a little bit about kind of the value-based proposition that's embedded in the PDGM changes. What other sorts of value-based structures are you seeing in the home health arena? I think some of the innovation models that the Medicare program, CMS, the innovation program, is actually putting out to drive towards a more holistic suite of care for the patient population that needs home health services are a very interesting models to keep an eye out, whether it's the direct entity contracting model or some of the others towards values of care. One point I think that, back to Barry's comment of 
the pure play versus maybe the joint play of a home health and hospice. I think playing into the value-based idea is there's oftentimes it feels a gap in the provision of palliative care, that transitional care that an individual may need prior to being eligible for hospice, but that doesn't really qualify for therapy under a home health benefit. And it'll be interesting to see if uh, the government or the new administration picks up changes to drive benefits for for that provision of care. It, it's just a model. It's a gap that I see that certain providers in the industry that are operating this joint home health and hospice model that they're trying to solve right now because currently it's not really reimbursed, but there feels to be a real need. And I think filling that gap could be a real value driver in the system that could be a change that should be advocated for. Barry, are you seeing any other kind of value-based models beyond kind of what's embedded in the PDGM? We are seeing the emergence of, you know, home health organizations that are taking risk, that are, you know, entering into arrangements with payers on a capitated basis to manage populations. So really moving away completely from the PDGM episodic approach to more of an at-risk model for a designated population of a payer's membership. And so I think this is sort of the next frontier for the industry as it evolves as well along the lines of so many other areas that we're seeing for these kind of bundled payments and such. So I think that the home health industry historically has been very capable at, you know, matching nurses with shifts, and that has served it well. But I do think the next skill set now is going to be moving into really looking holistically at patients and trying to avoid hospital readmissions, to manage chronic conditions and avoid escalations and acuity and really serve a different function or maybe a slightly modified function than what its historical role has been. And so these skill sets of population health that would employ data analytics, predictive analytics to really understand how a patient is being uh, sort of managed holistically is, is really going to be the future of the industry. I would say that, just to finish this off here, that those dynamics, as you overlay them on a sector that has historically been very, very fragmented and very, very oriented towards the very small agencies, providing a lot of the care of the market, these changes definitely benefit businesses of scale all the things involved in value-based contracting and delivering once you have a value-based contract all require scale and investment. We're going to see from a transaction perspective, uh, now that there's also greater stability from a government reimbursement perspective, so like the tailwinds are going to continue to blow in the direction of consolidation in this space, which for us on the call at least, that bodes well. I think with that, we'll call it a wrap. Barry, it's always fun to have you on with us. Trey, thank you for your expertise and thank you everyone for joining us. We appreciate you joining us on this episode of Across the Table. 
To learn more about today's discussion or to contact us, please visit our website at mcguirewoods.com. We look forward to hearing from you. This podcast was recorded and is being made available by McGuire Woods for informational purposes only. By accessing this podcast, you acknowledge that McGuire Woods makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in the podcast. The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those of McGuire Woods. This podcast should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice from a licensed professional attorney in your state and should not be construed as an offer to make or consider any investment or course of action.